Welcome to Job Sharing and Beyond, the future of work podcast that goes beyond the traditional nine to five. I am Karen Tischler, speaker, consultant, and host of the show, where we hear from global experts every other week to discover innovative solutions and tips on how to remain a relevant employer in the future. Before I start introducing a very special guest to you today, I would like to make you aware that the next Emily's Path Consulting newsletter will be published on Halloween. In it, there will be updates on previous job sharing and beyond podcast guests and sneak previews of future ones. It includes interesting research findings of flexible work, fathers in care, support for professionals returning to paid work, and transferable business skills from unpaid care work. Last but certainly not least, it includes a Q&A interview. Answering questions in this newsletter's edition will be Eva O'Brien, host of the podcast Happy at Work and founder of Empowerment Coaching. To subscribe to the newsletter, please head over to Emily's Path Consulting's website, which is E-M-I-L-Y-S-P-A-T-H dot C-A, Emily's Path dot C-A. You can also subscribe there to the Job Sharing and Beyond podcast via your favorite listening platform. And now, without further ado, I am so appreciative to introduce my guest to you today. Frank J. Reed is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Toronto. He has also been the director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources from 1997 to 2009. He received his PhD in economics at Queens in 1975, his master's from LSE in 1971, and here in Vancouver, his BA from UBC in 1970. In his long and illustrious academic career, Frank has authored many publications with his research focus on labor economics. In his honor, the Frank Reed Prize has been established and it is presented each year to the top graduating student or students from the two-year Master of Industrial Relations and Human Resources degree program at Convocation. Frank was included in Canada's Who is Who in 1993. And together with his colleagues, Professors Noah M. Meltz and Gerald S. Swartz, he co-authored the book, Sharing the Work, an analysis of the issues in work sharing and job sharing in 1981. Thank you so much to, um, for coming onto my show today, Frank. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. We have a lot of people listening to us from all over the world. Could you tell them a little bit where you're calling in from and maybe a particular food you like and a, a special site in your area? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, living in Toronto now and teaching at University of Toronto. 
um, although I grew up in Vancouver and went to UBC there, so I'm, <laughs> I'm familiar with the, the rainy weather in Vancouver. Um, in terms of Toronto, it's a very diverse city as Vancouver is. Uh, so, I mean, there's so many great places to eat in Toronto. My favorite food is probably Malaysian food. Um, my wife happens to be from Malaysia, and so we've, I've visited there many times, and, uh, and I, I love Malaysian food, and I can find that in Toronto. That sounds very delicious. <laughs> so now, Frank, originally I found you as I was doing research about job sharing and work sharing. And to be honest, I was really surprised that you and your colleagues, Professor Noah um, M. Meltz and Gerald S. Schwarz had written the book, Sharing the Work and Analysis of the issues in work sharing and job sharing already in 1981. Can you share with our listeners how this book came about? Yeah, that's a long time ago, 40 years ago, we were, yeah. <laughs> we were interested in this. Um, it came about uh, partly because of uh, an interest uh, with, uh, uh, Jerry Schwartz was uh, the uh, director of research at the Ontario Ministry of Labor. And uh, he kind of approached uh, myself and uh, Professor Noah Meltz uh, to kind of do some research on this topic. And so that's kind of uh, the genesis of it. Um, it was, um, uh, you know, so we, and then the book was subsequently published uh, by the University of Toronto Press. And now, can you tell our listeners the difference between work sharing and job sharing? Yeah, sure. I, I find that you probably experienced this as well. Often those terms are used interchangeably and people mm -hmm. really don't make a distinction, but I think it's, there's two different concepts and I think it's good to have different words for them. Uh, so what I, uh, what I mean by work sharing is, it's the impetus for work sharing is when the firm suffers a drop in demand for labor, like say during a recession, and they might be contemplating layoffs. And so if they were, for, for example, if they were considering laying off 20% of their employees, the idea of work sharing is that instead they would reduce the hours of work by about 20%. So say go from a five day week to a four day week. What makes it sort of an interesting policy is not just an hours reduction, but this idea of short time compensation, meaning that the workers can draw employment insurance benefits on that one day a week that they're not working. So it's kind of like they're, you're sharing not just the work, but also the employment insurance benefits and the leisure time. And uh, so that's the, that's the idea of, of work sharing. Job sharing, on the other hand, comes from the sort of like the supply side of the labor market in the sense that the impetus is employee, some employees have preferences to work, you know, half time or some you know, part of the week. And so the, the impetus there is from employee preferences rather than the demand side of a drop in, in demand for labor. Thank you very much for explaining the difference. Now, what were your main conclusions from the book? Um, well, the, in, the, in the book, one of the things we talked about was uh, at that time, Canada had actually had a pilot program of work sharing. And uh, so we had sort of done a study of that pilot program and we were, uh, we were kind of advocating in a sense that, that that pilot program be made into a permanent uh, work sharing program so that the employment insurance system would be adjusted so that workers could uh, could be eligible for unemployment benefits for that sort of one day a week when they were unemployed. And uh, so, I mean, the, the basic idea was it shouldn't cost the government any more because 
instead of laying off one worker in five who's drawing employment benefits five days a week, you have five people who are drawing unemployment benefits one day a week. So the idea is the same amount of employment benefits just being distributed more equally. Um, and so our, our conclusion was that we should make that program permanent. Uh, that happened in the subsequent year, actually. Um, there was the, uh, the Ministry of, uh, of Employment and Immigration at the time, Lloyd Axworthy, called a big conference in Ottawa, had a lot of labor and management representatives there, invited us up, distributed a book to all the participants, and the, the government program was made, you know, was, was made permanent. So that was, you know, that was very, uh, you know, positive news on that front. Um, one of the sort of con concerns that I had and that I suppose the disappointments is that, in a sense, is that the government took a lot of the provisions from the sort of pilot program and just mm -hmm. kept those in the permanent program. And they were things like uh, that normally there's a two week waiting period before people mm -hmm. can draw benefits but when they're when they're laid off they kind of waived that to make it more appealing to for workers to take part in the program um, they also said that if there's layoffs at the end of the work sharing program that the workers could apply for employment benefits in the usual way and sort of you know if there were 20 percent laid off they could then uh, get unemployment benefits a second time so in a, in a sense, you could call like a double dipping provision. Mm -hmm. Both of those things made the program more attractive for people to take part, which was great for the pilot program. The problem is that when they introduced that into the permanent program, it made the program more expensive. So mm -hmm. the, even though in principle, it shouldn't have cost the government more, in fact, it did. And so as a result of that, I think the government was reluctant to kind of advertise the program because mm -hmm. it was gonna be more costly. So my view was the program should be made revenue neutral, you know, or like cost neutral to the government. So the government could, you know, could promote work sharing, the work sharing program without worrying about a substantial increase in employment insurance benefits. So I think that like in some other jurisdictions, you sort of either go the layoff, the, the conventional unemployment route where there's layoffs and you mm -hmm. draw benefits that way, or you have the work sharing route, but you don't do both. And so in Canada, we have the opportunity to do both, but as a result, because of that, they don't, you know, they just kind of don't encourage people to participate as much as I think uh, they, they could or they should. Due to COVID-19, work sharing has all of a sudden become more prominent than it was maybe in the last 10 years or so. Now, compared to what you had written originally in your book, um, what differences, if any, are there now for the um, the COVID work sharing program? Right. Yeah. So there's certainly much more uh, need for for work sharing now because so many uh, workplaces are are uh, have reduced their level of employment. You know, like mm -hmm. in many in the in the restaurants and so on. Even when we're kind of going back to to something like normal uh, normal levels. Um, because of physical distancing requirements and uh, and so on, they might be only serving a quarter of the number of customers they did before. So there's always these layoffs of staff or potential layoffs, and so work sharing is a is a way to kind of avoid that. Um, the, in terms of the differences in the program, the government made a number of changes to make the program uh, more more attractive. Or, and uh, I think the main change is that they reduce the requirement for a recovery plan. 
So in the original program, you know, that the, the, there was, the idea was, it was work sharing is meant to be a temporary thing until the company goes back to full production and then they're going to call mm-hmm. back those, you know, bring those employees back to working, say, five days a week. And so the, the employer was required to submit a plan indicating within the time frame of the program, whether it was six months or up to a maximum of a year in some cases, um, how, why they thought they would recover and be back to full employment. And it was kind of difficult to do that because if it's a recession, you know, nobody really knows you know, how right. long that's going to last. So, exactly. so, so writing a recovery plan was a bit, I think, of an onerous requirement. And in this, during the period of, of, uh, of COVID, they basically kind of eliminated that. They kind of reduced it to just a couple of lines instead of a, a you know a substantive document. So that was one important thing. They also extended the length of time that you could draw benefits uh, and so on. So they made the program. They just relaxed the requirements in many ways, and, uh, and to kind of and to encourage participation in the work sharing program. Incidentally, they had also during the global financial crisis. Uh, back in 2008, had done some, something similar, but not quite as extensive as they did during COVID, where they also like extended the length of time you could participate in the work sharing program. Uh, so it sort of seems that when we are in a more serious recession, the government tries to encourage people to take part in work sharing, whereas in normal kind of uh, normal circumstances, when we still have lots of unemployment and lots of layoffs they're not as uh, not as open to that idea. Yeah, which I think is a shame because to me, work sharing seems such a good program to help everybody by reducing the, the number of people being um, laid off. And mm-hmm. um, now in your 2020 article recently, you were saying that work sharing is not that well known. So why do you think that is? Well, that comes back to this issue of the costs, I think. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that because the government, you know, my, my view, and I've, I've never, you know, this is just my own you know, personal viewpoint, but my personal viewpoint is that because of the government's concern that work sharing tends to cost more than conventional unemployment benefits, they are, you know, there's almost no advertising of the work sharing program. Right. And so they don't really, I mean, there's people who find out about it. And I mean, in absolute numbers, there are thousands of firms, hundreds of thousands of employees taking part in the work sharing program, but that's still a drop in the bucket in terms of the overall Canadian labor force. Right. And so I think that they, I think that's, that's why I was, why I feel strongly that we should modify the program to make it, it might make it a little bit less attractive to employees and firms to take part if they can't. Right draw benefits after the program finishes and and they might have to um, lower the the rate of benefits somewhat like I did some calculations that suggested that if by waiving the two-week waiting period to get benefits under conventional uh, EI if you reduce the benefit rate from 55 percent to 50 percent that would roughly offset the cost of waiving the waiting period to get benefits so changes like that that would make it cost neutral for the government, I think would then allow the government to freely advertise it and, and, and promote it a bit more than they, they normally do. Um, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been interested in this for <laughs> 40 years and, and I've been kind of teaching all my classes, I kind of teach you know, my students about it. And what I find is when I talk to people, it's always, always, it's almost always uh, 
a, a new thing for them. You know, they haven't heard of this program and uh, it's sort of remarkable. But uh, so I kind of do my bit in terms of trying to educate students who are coming through our <laughs> our uh, human resources and industrial relations programs about uh, about work sharing. But, um, you know, what we really need, I think, is a much a much broader platform to uh, to to spread the knowledge of the of the program and the advantages that it has for for both employers and and employees and society as a whole because it can if you're reducing the number of layoffs people uh, maintain their attachment to the job the employers right. the employers don't have to spend as much time kind of recruiting people who don't return from layoffs. Um, there's a lot of costs, social costs of unemployment, and it, like addition to the stress and the personal costs for employees. Um, I mean, there's also costs in terms of, um, you know, I mean, unemployment's been found to to be associated with um, various increases in in in, uh, uh, in in illnesses and you know criminal activity and so on. And so we end up paying more through our health system or through our sort of social, you know, the uh, um, the, the justice system. And so, if you look at a, if you look at it broadly, the government is probably saving a lot of money through having by having a work sharing program rather than having layoffs. Yeah. Now, if a business leader is listening to us now and is on the fence of looking into work sharing, what yeah. would you tell him or her? Yeah, I would say th this is something that can be advantageous for your employees because what we've shown is that. Uh, a typical, for example, if someone goes is, is uh, working only four days a week and getting employment benefits for the fifth day, they end up getting about 90% of their normal weekly income plus an extra day off. And that's something that's appealing, not just to the people who otherwise would have been laid off, but even majority of full-time employees, most of them, not everyone, but most of them kind of think, well, I, I could get an extra day off for a week and only sacrifice a half a day's pay instead of a full day's pay. That's appealing to a lot of employees, even the ones not threatened by layoffs. So, so we're, it's very positive from a worker's perspective. From the employer perspective, you know, you as I mentioned, you 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 save in the cost of of recruiting employees who are not don't don't who are laid off and don't come back when you when you recall them. Um, you avoid things like the costs of, of bumping employees between jobs when you lay lay people off. For example, if it's a unionized environment, often senior people bump junior people out of their positions. And so people are then working at jobs they're not, they may not have done for a long time or they may never have done. So you have higher productivity. I mean, the, the surveys have showed higher productivity under work sharing than under layoffs. Um, and so there's kind of a multitude of benefits for the employer. There's also some costs, there's costs of administering the program. There some, can be some fringe benefit costs, which are higher if, than under, uh, under work sharing than under layoffs, because if you lay people off, then you're not providing benefits to for one of those workers, right. where if you're keeping them all on, you're, there, there's higher benefit costs. But when you look at those costs and benefits, the research indicates that on balance, labor costs are lower under work sharing than they are under a layoff alternative. So there's cost advantages from the employer, there's labor relations advantages in the sense that Union, you know, unions may feel that here's an employer that's doing something progressive, preventing layoffs of our members, and uh, so it can enhance the labor relations uh, in, in, in firms. If it's a high-profile firm where 
people in the community realize that this firm is kind of engaging in work sharing. I think can also have a public relations component. Mm -hmm. uh, these are things which are kind of difficult to measure, you know, the labor relations aspect right. and the public relations. Uh, they're probably there, but difficult to measure. But even in the things which have been measured pretty carefully in past research, uh, we can sort of see that it's actually beneficial for, for, the, for the employer in lots of respects. Thank you so much. Now, in your book, you talked and what you just explained before to our listeners, the difference between work sharing and job sharing. Right. Now, I am truly surprised that job sharing really hasn't been implemented so much in Canada at all. So why do you think this is? Yeah, um, I think there's, you know, there's, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, again, when you look at the benefits and costs of job sharing, they're pretty positive for both the employees and the, the employer and, and for, for society more broadly. Um, I think that a couple of the things, one is uh, that there are some, some legislative barriers to job sharing that I think we could correct. Uh, these come from things like payroll taxes, for example, which uh, have a ceiling on the contributions. So, for example, uh, with our Canada Pension Plan and employment insurance contributions, which are both federal programs, you, the employer and the employee contribute up to a ceiling level of, of around 50000 $50, or so, $55,000 per year. Beyond that, you know, in, income above that is not subject to a payroll tax. So what that means is that if you have an employee who is earning $100,000, half of that income is not subject to payroll tax. If you convert that to two employees earning $50,000, then that whole $100,000 is subject to payroll tax. Right. So that those, the, the, the fact that those ceilings are based on kind of annual earnings means that the payroll taxes are, you know, you're paying more payroll taxes if you have a job, two people sharing the job than one, one person working full time. And that's something which I think can easily be changed. And I think one of the ways to do that is, well, first of all, the ceilings could just be abolished and, and have lowered the rate of payroll tax, but have it spread over a wider, you know, over all earnings. So at least it's a proportional tax. But uh, if the, we want to retain the ceilings for various reasons, we could do that if we just converted it to a ceiling on hourly earnings. So you would say, for example, you've got someone earning $100,000 and that's like $50, $50 an hour. You pay, you would pay tax only on the first $25 per hour. And if it was in hourly rates, then two people who were job sharing would, wouldn't cost the employer any more in payroll taxes than one person who were working full time. So those are sort of things, I mean, we have a several of these kind of payroll taxes with ceilings, you know, there's Canada Pension Plan, Employment Insurance, Workers' Compensation, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. So, you know, together, these, these are about 15% or so of payroll. So that can be a significant factor for the, uh, for employers. Uh, so I think governments could, you know, could reduce one of the barriers that way. I think there's also, to some extent, just like uh, just like we in the past had ideas about gender roles and so on and the division of housework and so on there's just some traditions you know that people kind of value in some ways people who are working full time seem more serious to an employer than people who are working 
who are job sharing. And I think we have to kind of get over those kind of those those biases or those sources of misinformation because when you look at the numbers, job shares can be very productive. You know, there's all kinds of advantage to having two employees sharing the jobs. Um, you know, that uh, they, uh, I mean, although again, there's some administrative costs and there may be some fringe benefit costs, but still there are advantages in terms of, of higher productivity. You know, people, you can have reduced absenteeism because if people are job sharing, if they have appointments or, you know, you're going to get an appliance delivered or something and you have to be there during a certain window or you're going to go to the dentist or whatever, you can schedule these things on your day off. You don't have to schedule right. it during the work time. So, uh, so th there would be fewer absences. Um, I, I just actually, a study that I published uh, with a co-author from, uh, from York University a couple of years ago, uh, we did an analysis looking at the extent to which pe when people are overworked, you know, their work, because we had data on the number of hours people are working and the number of hours they want to work. Mm -hmm. So what we found is that people who are working more hours than they want to work tend to have higher rates of absenteeism as a result of that. So in a sense, they're kind of managing to bring their hours down through absenteeism. And so you have lower rates of absenteeism if you have, um, uh, if you have uh, job sharing than, than, than full-time employees. And things like if someone is on vacation or someone is absent, at least you've got someone on the job who's kind of you know, doing the most essential right. part of it. You might be able to ask the other job sharer if they would like to go full time during the, the period of, of, uh, of vacation or, or, uh, or, or, or absence or all, if, uh, if they were open to that and if the employer needed that. So you may have someone to kind of cover for the other person. You can have situations where the employees might have complementary skills. I mean, there may be different aspects of the job and some one employee might be really good at some aspects of it and they can divide the tasks in ways which kind of correspond to their uh, to their skill sets. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's so many reasons why job sharing can actually be advantageous uh, to the employer. I think normally we're probably thinking of this from the employee perspective, you know, mm -hmm. that people can achieve a work-life balance by, by allowing them to share jobs, particularly, I mean, be, because housework has been, and work in the home more generally, has you know it, it's it's still often div divided in a traditional way that women have a greater responsibility for childcare and work in the home, so they're more tend to be more interested in job sharing than than men. Although you've mentioned that in Europe we've seen lots of men doing that, which is great. Uh, I'd like to see more of that in Canada. But tr so traditionally it's been in, in Canada the majority of, of employees who are interested in job sharing uh, have been women. Um, and so there's advantages from the employee perspective. The, the other thing that I have focused on a bit more is the advantages, the broader advantages to society. And this is kind of relates a little bit to my kind of concern about work sharing. And I guess I kind of come at this, maybe I got interested in this first because of a strong interest in unemployment. And, mm -hmm. and so one of the things that struck me is that we have this paradox that there are a substantial minority of people in the workforce who would like to reduce their work time in various ways, you know, with a proportionate reduction of pay, like, like job sharing. Right. Um, 
And then we also have a lot of people who are unemployed who can't find jobs. And so we've got this, it seems kind of paradoxical that we have these people who are working more than they want to. And we have other people who don't have jobs who would like to work. And so to me, it makes a lot of sense to say, why don't we put these two groups together and, you know, let people who want the job share do so. That means that the employer can then hire more people and that reduce the sort of uh, the unemployment that's due to kind of lack of lack of jobs. Um, in my, the, 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 the paper the, the, that I published in the, the, the one you referred to in 1986, uh, in that paper, I looked at some data from a survey that was done way back then on uh, work reduction. It was actually called the work reduction survey. And what they did was that they asked people specific questions about uh, reducing not just their work week, which is typically what we think of with job sharing, you know, people are working half half the week. Mm -hmm. and uh, But uh, even broader than that. So looking at maybe some people want a shorter day, uh, some people want to work uh, fewer weeks per year and so on. So some of the numbers that even though there were a minority of employees, they were kind of a substantial, uh, substantial number. Um, just in terms of kind of uh, the, the, the preferences for reducing the work week, which would include this sort of traditional job sharing, about 25% of employees said they would like to engage in, in job sharing. Mm -hmm. And the survey kind of asked them uh, various questions, like they said, uh, for example, would you be prepared to give up 20% to work uh, one less day per week? Or, uh, and about 4.5% of employees said they would like to do that because um, and, uh, you know, and a smaller number, uh, just about 2% of employees said they'd be prepared, you know, they wanted to engage in job sharing in the sense of uh, working 50% uh, uh, for, uh, you know, go on a 50% salary and work uh, just two and a half days a week. But if you sort of convert that into the amount of employment, the extra employment that's, uh, that, would, that could potentially be generated, it would be something like about three percentage points. Uh, of employment that would be generated if employees, you know, filled those those positions with right. people who wanted to voluntarily job share. And then just to give you a couple of other examples, I don't want to give you too many numbers, but um, they also asked people about their annual vacation, as I said. So they said one of the questions would was, um, would you be prepared to give up two percent of your income for an extra? week of vacation, like five, five additional days. So, you know, one week out mm -hmm. of 50 is, you know, 2%. And so 23% of people in the survey said that they would like to do that. And mm -hmm. so, um, and for, and even things like, I mean, they asked different levels, you know, reduce your work time by, you know, 2%, 5%, 10%, 20% and so on. So um, uh, about 2% of people said that they would, they'd like to, they would take a 20% reduction in their income for basically like a, a, almost an extra uh, month of, of vacation. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you sort of look at pull those numbers up for the 40% of people who said they would like to take some un, unpaid vacation, um, that sort of adds about, you know, about a half a percent to, uh, to total, uh, total work time. And if they were replaced, it would increase employment by about half a percent. Um, another aspect of job this employment sharing was sabbatical leaves. Mm -hmm. So um, 
in this case, about 40% of people in the sample indicated that they would like to, uh, to take an extended period of time you know, off over, you know, like in a, over, over a period of several years. So, like, so an example of this is uh, in the education sphere. A lot of teachers in you know, primary and secondary schools engage in what they call a four over five plan. Uh, meaning that the teacher goes on 80% salary, so a 20% reduction on their salary mm -hmm. for four years. And then the fifth year, they get a year off at 80% of their salary. So they're just basically spreading their, you know, their, their, their salary out, a four-year salary over five years. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, I mean, that, so that's been going on in the educational field for quite a long time. But it, it looks like there's a much broader appetite for that. So... Uh, something like about 5% of employees uh, said they would be prepared to take, uh, you know, like they wanted to have a full week, a full year off uh, after six years of work with the proportionate reduction in income. So basically spreading their income over that period of time. So, and if you kind of looked at how many additional jobs could be created, if you allowed, if people all took all those things and it was translated into to increased employment, that would be a couple of percent increase in employment. Um, when you tote these things up, you know, you get something like, you know, four or five, six percent increase in employment as a result of just letting people take time off who wanted to right. take time off, you know, without pay. Now, there's other problems to be considered, like there may be mismatching and you can't automatically translate that reduced work time into increased jobs for various reasons. But even if you look at some instances where these things have happened and you look at the percent that employment's increased, it looks like you could get an increase in employment above two or 3% just by letting people take time off voluntarily that they indicated they would want to take unpaid time off. That might sound like a small number, but when you think about it from the point of view of macroeconomics, the difference between when a boom in the economy and a recession, like maybe going from an unemployment rate of you know, of 7% to 10%, right? three percentage points. So those kind of magnitudes are the difference between a booming economy and a recession. So, uh, so the potential is pretty significant for creating jobs just by letting people take time off that they voluntarily want to. And so that's why I advocated that we should give people a right in employment standards to have unpaid reductions in work time unless the employer can demonstrate there's, there's some good reason why that's not uh, you know not feasible so it would kind of just shift the onus it wouldn't say that everybody is automatically entitled to that but right. they're entitled to it unless the employer can make a you know a substantive case why it's not feasible and i think where right now it's up would be up to each individual employee to go and propose that to an employer and Probably in most cases, it's just, well, we don't do that at this in our workplace. Right. They just don't consider it. Thank you so much for sharing all these interesting um, statistics and numbers. And I feel there is honestly, there is just so much more like maybe marketing and advertising um, campaigns necessary to make people better understand what a difference it can truly make. And because I'm German and I've, you know, done a lot of research in Europe, there, for example, like in England, there is an organization that allows 
people, for example, to only work during term time. So if they have children, then during the vacations, they don't work. Or then there is like, you know, as you were talking about different um, aspects of like when somebody wants to work, there is an organization currently in Germany that is starting to look at job sharing between somebody who is going to, you know, who's pregnant right now is going to have a child and somebody who has been outside of the paid workforce, say looking after children and wants to come back so that they actually do a job share. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I, I think it's like a 20-80 split or 75-25 split. So yeah. again, allowing somebody to come back and by the same token, keeping the person who is then on maternity leave sort of quote unquote, in the game by, you know, by having maybe a 20% amount of work. And um, as you were referring to before about the productivity, so just as an example, I interviewed Maggie Pickett, who did job sharing with one partner over 23 years. And she told me twice when they moved position they got promoted a few times, a few times they moved positions, but twice they were actually replaced by two full-term employees <laughs> because they were so energetic. She told me about the energy level because basically they split it Monday to Wednesday one and then Wednesday to Friday the other. Mm -hmm. And it was for the second person, you know, they came in fresh and they were ready to go. And yeah. also because it's a team, right? They wanted to have... Uh, something they have accomplished to be able to share with their partner what they have done yeah so yeah. so i i just think there is so much yeah that's yeah, that's, yeah. no i i agree completely that's the sense i have that that the arguments are i, I think are very persuasive but they're just not well known and right. so it's really i think it's a matter of somehow you know marketing this and bringing it to the attention of people that particularly to employers, because I think that right. I think that employees are, you know, perceive the benefits. I think employers are somewhat reluctant because they think, well, you know, this is something new. We'd have to change our HR systems and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think if they became more aware of the benefits to the employer of right. in implementing these systems, that that would that would uh, really help the, uh, the, the, yeah. the spread of them and the more widespread, widespread adoption. And and to that point, from all the research I've done and people I talk to, one of the things people have said is because it's a team, it actually requires less quote unquote management because they have each other who mm -hmm. they are accountable for as well as they can do, you know, brainstorming right. among them. And so therefore actually need less input mm -hmm. from yeah. a manager. But yeah. again, to your point, sometimes managers might think, oh, I've got now two employees instead of one and I have mm -hmm. to tell them who does what. And in reality, it's from all I've read and heard, they are figuring it out themselves and right. they will only go to their manager if there's you know some challenge and also i think people who want to do job sharing they tend to be very organized and very good at communication mm -hmm. so you know it they communicate well among each other and therefore also communicate well with the rest of the team and their managers yeah right. so yeah yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, two heads are better than one, you know, so they can they can sort of uh, solve some problems and uh, and bring uh, more ideas to the table in terms of how to how to improve their productivity and their performance. So, yeah, no, I think it's a there's, there's tremendous potential benefits here for for, yeah. for employers and, and for society as a whole.
So I really hope that a lot of people are listening to that podcast and get inspired by realizing that you've already you know, done all that research so many years ago and seen the potential and that we just need to keep on, you know, sharing it more and making more people realize. And I'm, I'm super appreciative that you came onto the show and, you know, I had the opportunity to talk with you about all the research you have done. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure meeting you. Just to make sure, I always ask that, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience that um, we haven't talked about? Uh, no, I think we've covered it all. I threw a lot of numbers at you, so <laughs> <laughs> as many as your listeners could cope with. And so um, if somebody would like to contact you, how mm-hmm. can they best um, do that? Yeah. Um, my email at the University of Toronto is uh, just frank, F-R-A-N-K dot read, R-E-I-D, at uh, utoronto.ca. Okay. Thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure having you on the show today. Okay. Yeah, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Okay, bye now. It was such an honor to have Professor Frank Reed on the show today and to learn firsthand about his research over the past 40 plus years. Here are some of the highlights from our conversation. Frank shared more details about the book he co-authored about work sharing and job sharing. He felt disappointed that the permanent work sharing program that was subsequently rolled out was not cost neutral for the government. This made it less attractive for them to advertise it and thus it has not been used as widely as it could have been. He feels that tweaking it to get to cost neutrality could allow for wider popularity and application. Similarly, he talked about that sharing a full-time job with two employees is likely currently viewed by employers as a more expensive option than having one full-time employee due to potentially higher payroll tax contributions. Again, a tweaking of that could make it less expensive and thus more attractive for employers to offer job sharing. Frank shared interesting details of his research showing that a substantial minority of surveyed people would be willing to give up money for additional time off with differing preferences from reduced work days and fewer hours working a week to additional vacation or job sharing. I thought it was really important when Frank pointed out that some of these adjustments creating potentially more work sharing and job sharing opportunities may be leading to some perceived only maybe minor adjustments of employment but that it it was important to remember that on a macroeconomic level, a three percentage point difference of the unemployment number, like 7% versus 10% could make the difference between a recession and a boom. I so agree with Frank that there needs to be more marketing and awareness raising of work sharing and job sharing. I am hoping that this podcast can add to it. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas. 
to keep listening to future episodes, please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating. We would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye.